0: God, we thank you that you are a living God and that you are alive and can speak to us even now by your word and by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and minds that are open to what you have to say in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, of course, today we celebrate the reason for our faith as Christians. Church of the Resurrection, Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Now, this is, of course, the bedrock truth of our faith as Christians. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, as Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And prior to that, he said, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sin. Your faith is futile. Your faith is in vain. But in fact, he says. Christ has been raised. So, this morning I want to share with you some reasons to believe in this bedrock truth of Christianity. My goal is to strengthen our faith in Christ. And if there are people who are skeptical or doubting, and many of us have been through seasons of skepticism or doubt, I hope that to give you something that will open your mind to belief that Christ is alive. One of the things I think we have to kind of get past is this idea that uh, faith does not have evidence. There's a famous atheist who has has said faith is belief in spite of the lack of evidence. In other words, faith is belief where there's no evidence. And then he would make the case that science is belief where there is evidence. I think that's a false dichotomy. Um I think there are historical reasons, historical facts to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, you still need faith. You still need to trust. But that's true in any form of knowledge. And this is where the false dichotomy comes in. In all forms of knowing, the first step is trust. Think about it. If you're learning a language from a mentor, you have to trust this person who's teaching you the language. If you're learning history you have to trust the books that you read and even if you start learning more and more history and reading more books and critiquing and revising what you've read earlier you're doing that on the basis of trust so any form of knowledge requires trust a step of faith at the outset And that's true when it comes to the Christian faith. And as we grow and as our experience and what other people have said, we enter into a tradition of knowledge, a body of knowledge. And again, that's just like in any other field of learning. And so I kind of want to just push back on this idea of a dichotomy between religion and religious knowledge and other. Yes, there's a central miracle here. The supernatural miracle occurred, and we can't really get at that rationally. But if you dismiss that, you're not doing that based on reason. You're doing that based on a presupposition that miracles can't happen because God doesn't exist. And that's you can't really prove that. So that's a presupposition. Well, I've gotten too deep into that stuff uh, already. The point Christian truth is based on faith, but faith has its reasons. And so we're going to look at some of the reasons uh, for the belief in the resurrection I'm just going to share a few that arise from this reading in Luke 24. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard this, some of what I'm about to say. But it's just, again, to remind us that we don't have an empty faith, that we the, uh, we aren't just taking a, a blind leap into the dark. And the fact number one is that there's an empty tomb. We have a picture of an empty tomb, <laughs> not the empty tomb, of course, but we have a picture of... The empty of an empty tomb. And that's a fundamental historical fact. Um, Verse one, it says this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, these are the women, the women who witnessed the death of Jesus, many of them are in this group who went to the tomb of Jesus, taking spices they had prepared to honor his burial site. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Verse two. Not because Jesus needed to have the stone rolled away to get out of the tomb, but because the stone needed to be rolled away so they could get in. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus tomb empty. And then verse two, we see Peter after he hears the witness of the women. He runs to the tomb, stoops and looks inside And he sees the linen cloths by themselves. And then he went home marveling at what had happened. So again, he sees the empty tomb and start to arise. How do you explain the empty tomb if you don't accept the Christian teaching that God raised Jesus from the dead? Well, there are lots of explanations. Some of them hold more water than others. The most common is that the disciples themselves stole the body of Jesus. And we see in Matthew 28 that it was the religious leaders who were threatened by Jesus, the Jewish religious authorities, who came up with this story right away as a cover-up to the empty tomb or an explanation for why it was empty. And what they did is they paid the guards, those who were guarding the tomb of Jesus, hush money. And, And it says that in Matthew 28, verse 13, that the religious leaders paid the guards of Jesus' tomb, and they said, tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. While the guards were asleep. And that's a story that circulated in the early church and continues to... I don't really think that's a very good cover-up story. I don't know about you. Um, I'm a pretty heavy... People ask, you know, how's the baby sleeping? And I have to say, I don't really know. I'm sleeping pretty good, but I don't know about the baby. You'll have to ask Josie. Um, but I think even if I had been a Roman guard that. Time guarding the tomb of Jesus, I think even if I was asleep, as soundly as I sleep, I think I probably would have roused if I heard somebody trying to break the seal of the tomb and move the stone away. So it's just not a likely story that the disciples came and were able to steal the body of Jesus. And then, by the way, you have to do. close behind. But let's say for the sake of argument that the disciples could do this. Why would they want to? Because Jesus's death to them meant it's over. It meant that he's not the Messiah. It, it, It meant that God's actually it meant that God's judgment was upon him because he died in such a horrific way. And the Old Testament says curses anyone who dies hanging on a tree. So it meant that Jesus was under a curse. So it was over as far as they were concerned. We have to kind of get ourselves back in the first century Jewish mindset in terms of how they thought about the Messiah. We look at it from 2000 years of Christian history and theology. But they really didn't understand this concept of a suffering Messiah. George Ladd, who was a professor of New Testament, studied In a book, he he studies every reference to the Messiah in Jewish literature, in ancient Jewish literature, in the Old Testament literature, and then in the writings that were between the two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the intertestamental Jewish literature. So George Ladd made a study of all this Jewish literature. okay, And he said that there is no reference to a suffering Messiah in this literature. Now, some of us know Isaiah 53. We're probably thinking about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, and we as Christians see a clear reference to the Messiah, and that's right in Isaiah 53. But that's not how the early Jews interpreted Isaiah 53. They had a different interpretation that bracketed the claim that that was talking clearly about the Messiah. And so, George Ladd, in this in this book, he says there's only one reference to a dying Messiah in early Jewish literature, and that comes from a first century text. And in that text, this dying Messiah, his death does not save, doesn't have saving significance. So he concludes to a first century Jew. And of course, these are the disciples. The idea of a suffering and dying Messiah was unheard of and seemed to contradict what the scriptures taught about the Messiah. And the point is this, that to the disciples, first century Jews, Jesus's death on the cross meant that he had failed and there was no reason to try to start a Jesus movement by stealing the body of a false messiah. So his tomb was empty, not because the disciples stole his body, which they probably couldn't have done in the first place. But then again, they wouldn't want to because his crucifixion meant that he was a false messiah. The tomb is empty because God raised him from the dead. There's another reason to believe in this story of Jesus's resurrection. The Gospels record that women were the first witnesses. And in Luke 24, we have this list. Luke names names. Luke is a very careful historian. And he says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women who were with them, who told these things to the apostles. Very historical in terms of the detail here. But the point is this, that as you probably know, and I'm sure many of you have heard this, that in the first century, of course, there was no such thing as women's equality. And and a woman's testimony was was not considered that credible. Um, In the first century, in both the Jewish court and in the Roman court, a woman's testimony was not normally admitted into court proceedings. And so the question is, if the disciples and if the early church made this story up, why would they have women to be the first witnesses to the empty tomb and to the risen Christ? I mean, we all know there's lawyers in our congregation and those of us who watch the legal dramas on TV, Law and Order, The Good Wife, those sorts of things. We all know credible testimony depends on credible witnesses. So if the disciples themselves... As the witness, God, to made the story stronger. I think the best answer is because this is how it really happened. So one final reason to believe in the resurrection. And to me, this is this is really a big one here. And that is the change in the disciples. How do you account for the change in the disciples and then the subsequent spread of Christianity? Something explosive had to happen. For them to go from seems like an idle tale to believing. And the Christian tradition has always said what happened is that they met the risen Christ. There's a story about a a meeting between two famous philosophers, August Comte and Thomas Carlyle. And Comte said to Thomas Carlyle, I'm going to start a new religion and it's going to sweep Christianity away. It's a religion based on human reason. We're going to sweep Christianity away. We're going to sweep all the other religions way. And Carlyle said, well, that's just a splendid idea. He said, all you've got to do then is you've got to speak like no man has ever spoken. You've got to live as no man has ever lived. You need to be crucified, rise on the third day and get the world to believe that you're alive today. And then maybe you can sweep Christianity away. Maybe then your religion will have some chance of success. Christianity spread because the disciples encountered and they were convinced that they had encountered the risen Christ. They went from fearing the religious authorities to being fearless in the face of the religious authorities. They went from hiding out to going out and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this man who was crucified, God raised from the dead. That was part of the early proclamation of the apostles. They went from doubting Christ is risen to being convinced that he was risen and being willing to die for that conviction. Most of the disciples died a martyr's death. The early church fathers said, many people will die for a lie, but few people who would ever die for a lie that they made up themselves, a whole group. Just doesn't make sense. What accounts for the change in the disciples and the growth of Christianity? Well, they saw the risen Christ. Not a symbol of hope, renewal, not a hallucination. There's no mass hallucinations. They encountered Christ with his nail scarred hands and his pierced side. A tremendous miracle that convinced them of the truth of Jesus. So we have the empty tomb. We have the witness of women. We have change in the disciples. And we could go on and you know, I don't obviously have time. This is scratching the surface. There are to this and counter arguments and, and more evidence. And, and you can just kind of go through this. But I think it builds a case for the credibility of the story of the resurrection. Actually, these are historical facts that most scholars, whether they're Christians or not, accept. The fact of the empty tomb, the change, the dramatic change in the disciples, and the problematic position of women as witnesses. Most historians agree with that. It's just what they make of those facts. That's the difference. So these are reasons to believe that Christ is risen. So Christianity has evidence. It's false to say otherwise. It's not really intellectually honest. Well, what does it matter anyway? Someone might say, you know, what does it mean for us? Even if God, did this great miracle 2000 years ago, this person, how does that impact our lives? Well, I think we as Christians know how it's impacted our lives. How would you explain that to somebody who does? Look at uh, our text again. In verse six, the angels say, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Oh, yeah, we remember that now we understand what that means. And they remembered his words. You see, what the resurrection does is it it demonstrates the truth of Jesus. His words are true. If Jesus is risen, it means that he's true and all his words are true. And he is who he says he was. The resurrection and the big. Point of the resurrection is this is God's stamp of approval on Jesus. This is God's vindication of his son verifying to the world that he is the son of God. And everything that he said is true. They remembered his words and the resurrection proved his words true. If Christ is raised, then his word is true. And that has life changing significance. It makes a difference, doesn't it? Makes a difference to the person who's in a hospital bed at 2 a.m. in the morning. Wondering if this is it. Makes a difference for that person to believe Christ is risen. And, and, and to believe Jesus's words in John eleven twenty five when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Makes a difference to know and to believe that there is a love that's stronger than death. To believe these words because Christ is risen makes a difference when we are weighed down with guilt and shame over something that we've done to know that Jesus's death on the cross really is the payment for my sin. And I really am cleansed and pardoned and forgiven at the cross of Christ. Someone said that Jesus's death on the cross was the payment for the forgiveness of sins and his resurrection was the receipt. It demonstrates that it's true. That when Jesus says this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins, that this really is true because he's alive. Resurrection of Jesus, this has profound implications because they verify the truth of Jesus and all his claims. As a parent, it makes a difference for me to be able to tell my children, you know what? You're more than just matter. You're not an accident, an accidental collection of molecules. You have been made in the image of God. You have a heavenly father who knows you and loves you. And he knows the number of hairs that are on your head. This life has meaning and purpose for you. Because Jesus says so. Those are his words. Remember his word. He's risen. It's true. It makes a great difference. So, brothers and sisters, are we continuing to live in the truth of the resurrected Christ and to look life and hope and meaning and purpose? We've experienced that in our life and we're called to share that with other people. Are you living on the side this truth, the truth. I think this is not one of those instances where we can say this is true for you and it works for you. Great. But it's not true for me. Either it's true for all of us or it's not true. This is a historical fact. And facts can be inconvenient things because they don't bend to our will. It's either true or it's not. And to trust in Jesus is to know the love of God and the life of God. But to reject that truth is to turn your back on the love and life of God now and forever it has great and grave consequences to reject the truth of Jesus. But God so loved the world. Even those who reject him, God's relentless, relentless love pursues people who are rejecting him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, takes that step. We'll have life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The problem with Christianity, I think sometimes today, is that it feels like the message is one of constant condemnation. That's not the Christian message. God did not send the world, the son into the world to condemn the world. John 317 says, but that through the world they might be saved or through Christ. Rather, the world might be saved through him. So God offers this salvation, this life, this love to us. But if we reject it, we're, we're left with a a Christless eternity. It makes a difference what we do with this truth. Flannery O'Connor, great uh, southern writer, wrote great short stories. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. There's a character there called the Misfit. One point in the story, he explains the significance of Jesus's resurrection. Says he has thrown everything off balance. If he didn't rise from the dead, there's nothing to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can. But if he did rise from the dead, if he did do what he said, then there's nothing else for us to do but throw everything away to follow him. Lord, I thank you that we have reasons to believe. It's the things that we've discussed today. But as we take a step of faith, you reveal yourself more and more to us. And even in personal ways, you allow us to experience your grace and love. Lord, you were lifted high upon the cross that you might draw all people to you as a demonstration of the love of God for the world. And then you rose on the third day. And that demonstrates that you are who you said. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us would trust and commit ourselves to your, your truth. I pray for those who maybe hold back, that you would reveal yourself more and more to them and that they would seek to seek you honestly in search for the truth of Christ that makes all the difference in the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.